Elementary next week. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at our current and present hope in Jesus. And this beautiful thing, as we're praying this morning, that we will have forever communion with our God. Not momentary, not for a while, but we will have forever communion with our God. In the church, and yes, even culturally, we often refer to this as going to heaven, going to heaven. But it's a little challenging when we say that phrase because there are honestly all sorts of misconceptions that immediately leap to mind. Like for some, it's a Disneyland in the sky forever, right? For others, like you have harp practice forever and ever on a cloud. Or even maybe worse, for some, it's an eternal church service that just goes on and on and on. So it's, it's not surprising that for many people in the church and in our culture, when they hear about heaven, they do not feel eagerness. It's not something that stirs up hope and joy and gladness. Well, honestly, there are people who are afraid of going to heaven, being with God, because they're so convinced it's going to be overwhelmingly boring. They don't want to go there, right? We don't say this, but that's the reality for many people in their hearts. So we've been looking at what is Jesus' promise here? If he meant for us to be stirred up, for us to be motivated, for us to have hope in being with him forever, we should really look at this promise of being with him in heaven. So today I really just want to dive into the question of who. Who is this for? Who is going to heaven? Who is spending eternity with God? That's what we're going to examine here this morning. So if you have a Bible, really encourage you, open up with me. We're going to look at the chapter in Revelation, chapter 21, the very end of your Bible. If you flip to the very end, it's going to be the second to last chapter. But again, this is Revelation chapter 21. It's where Dakota had us last week in the first couple of verses. We're going to be there again, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. So I'll read these for us, but I'd love it if you follow along. It says this, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. John, who wrote this book, sees a vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death say here at King's Cross, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You know, probably especially as we end that passage, you've got a lot of questions coming up. We're going to get there. But first, I just want to slow down and first look at the ground that we have already covered because that's going to be important for understanding some of these questions here today. So just go back with me, do a brief recap here. So this first week we were looking at how the theologian Wayne Grudem puts it really well. What is heaven? Heaven is the place where God most fully makes his presence known to bless. I think this is really helpful. Heaven is where God most fully, most fully makes known his presence to bless. This key most, this word most fully is really helpful for us because we've got to remember God is present everywhere. God is the maker of all things. And he didn't just make the world and the entire universe and then step back into heaven and just let the earth and the universe keep running like a clock. Rather, God is always, every moment, sustaining everything. He's willing your very breath in this room right now. So he is actively present, not just making his creation, but sustaining it. That's why beautifully it says in Colossians, in Christ all things are held together. He's the always consistent glue of the universe holding everything together. Christ is not just a way. He is always with us, always present. So we're right to say God is everywhere. What's this mean about heaven then? It's where, again, we clarify that is where God is most fully making his presence known. He is everywhere, but that's the place he's most fully communicating himself, his joy and his love in order to bless what we saw that first week. Last week, Dakota did a great job clarifying for us that heaven, hear me, is not God's plan to take us all to heaven forever. That might sound strange, but let me clarify. God's plan is not to take us to heaven forever. Rather, hear this, God's ultimate plan is to bring his dwelling, heaven, down to earth. Again, God's ultimate plan is to bring his dwelling Heaven, where he most fully makes known his joyful, loving presence to us, he's going to bring that fully here to earth. Isn't this unbelievable? This is honestly very different than how most people in our culture and even Christians think about eternity. They think it's off somewhere, but actually scripture shows us us it is here. Notice how again in Revelation 21 it points this out. Here in Verse 2 and 3, let me read this one more time for us. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. So this beautiful, adorned as a bride city is coming down out of heaven. Do you see this? It's not that we're all going up there, but rather God is coming down in his glory and the fullness of his presence here to earth. This is God's ultimate good plan. So this means that God is not giving up on his creation. He's not giving up on his design. Rather, God intends to redeem it, to make all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. He will restore this. 
That's why it says in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, this statement. It says, heaven must receive him, meaning Jesus. Jesus is in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the prophets. So God is not looking to abandon this world. He's looking to restore it, restore everything. And until then, yes, we confess Christ is temporarily in the heavens, but he will one day come here to make everything new. So if we or a loved one passes away now, we believe and confess they are with Christ in the fullness of his presence. But one day we all will be here in a newly made world. You with me? This is critical for us to see. Let me again ask that question, though. Who is this for? Who is this for? This going to heaven, this new heavens and new earth, is this for everybody automatically or just for some people? The testimony we see throughout Scripture, and especially here in the book of Revelation, is that this is for many, but not all. This is for many, many people, but not all. I want to read another passage from earlier in Revelation. It says this in chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. Again, John, having a vision, says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And do you notice as John sees this, it is not a small crowd. It is not a little multitude. He says this is a massive, great multitude of people that no one could count. So Scripture is testifying many, many people beyond what we could count will encounter, experience, and be overwhelmed with the love of God for all eternity. It is many. And do you notice it's people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation? This is people all over the world. It's not one category, not one time, but there will be people from every people group in Indonesia and India before the throne of God. We confess there will be people from every tribe and language in Asia and in Africa. From all the centuries, we will have people standing before the throne of God, glorying in him. What a beautiful hope. Many from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation an overwhelmingly diverse, overwhelmingly numerous crowd. That's the hope of who we'll be celebrating in eternity with. So it's many. It is many, many people. But also, Revelation clarifies, it is not all. Not everyone will experience this. Go with me again to Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8, what we read there. Let me clarify that again for us. It says here, verse 7 and 8, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I just need to pause and say that there are few beliefs held by Christianity through the centuries that is more difficult for our modern world than probably this kind of sentence that I just read here. Very difficult for people. 
And I want to address this very shortly. We're going to get there in just a second. But I want us to first look at who will experience this again. Who are the many according to Revelation? It's not all, but who are they? Did you notice that it says those who are victorious? Those who are victorious. Now, if this is who's inheriting all of this, we should be very curious. Who are these victorious ones? What does this mean? And how is that true of me? So let me explain this briefly. This should recall our minds back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, where Jesus sends seven messages or seven letters to seven different churches. And in each one, he gives specific encouragement to hold fast to him, that their allegiance to him would not fail, hold on to me. And he also gives specific warnings to repent to give up what is separating them from him, to not fall away. And at the end of each one of these messages, every time, all seven letters, they all end with this same refrain, to those who are victorious, I will give. And then it lists a reward. But again and again and again, those who are victorious, those who are victorious, those who are victorious, so that we would get the idea that to be in victory means you have held on to Jesus And you have repented from everything that would separate you from him and are walking in obedience with Jesus. This is not just the message of revelation. This is in line with the message of scripture. That we are told that we are made right with God by trust in him. It's by looking to him that we are made right with God. It's not about our good works. It's not about how impressive we can live. I hope you've heard this message again and again and again in this room. You cannot save yourself. You will never be good enough or righteous enough. The beauty of the good news is what God has done to qualify you. That it's his righteousness that he gives to us as a gift and we receive by faith in him. To such good news. But hear me, we can't just receive this and then continue to live however we want. We don't want, we can't just say, I trust in Jesus and then continue to revolve around ourselves. It shows that we have never come to know him. It shows that we have not truly put our trust in Jesus. Let, let me put it this way on a slide for you all. Repentance is the never failing fruit of real faith. Repentance is the never-failing fruit of real faith. It's impossible for there to be real trust in Jesus, real communion with him, and that not to do a work in your heart that makes you separate yourself from what costs you communion with God. You say, none of that is worth it to me anymore. I'm leaving behind my old way, and I'm now making you my goal and my price. Does this make sense? So you cannot say, I trust in Jesus, and then continue to live for yourself. The book of James makes this very clear. It actually has a phrase that says, even the demons believe that God exists. Even demons believe that there is a God, and they shudder. James is clarifying for us that it's not enough just to simply say you believe in God. That's not enough to say that you believe a God exists, or even to say that you are a Christian. What James is making clear is you must have the kind of trust in Jesus that says, it is no longer about me, but my life is now about you. 
that I'm yielding my entire self to you. I've given up on myself. I realize I cannot save myself or guide my own life, and I'm yielding myself to you, that you would be my Savior. And now I walk in obedience to you, my joy and my delight. So you say, Lord, I recognize I am not good enough on my own. I give up on this Caleb self-redemption process, realizing I cannot do this. I do not have a righteousness of my own. Instead, I say, look, Jesus, I need you to rescue me, to make me new. I need you to clothe me with a righteousness that's not my own, but yours. And one that I can't earn, but that you freely give. And as he comes in and works in our hearts, we have new love, new affection. He frees us from what used to hold us so that now we live in a different way. We leave behind our old self, our old loves, and we say, you now, Jesus, are my joy and my delight. You now are my refuge and my righteousness, and I will walk in obedience with you. So hear me, let me put it this way for us. The victorious are those who, by trust in Jesus, have overcome the world and its desires. You are victorious when you have trusted in Jesus. and By his spirit, he has come and he has freed you from your old self, lets you walk in obedience to him. If that's not true of you, see, this is not victory in your life. The victorious are those who, by trust in Jesus, relying on him, trusting in him, they are set free. Just where I want us to slow down for just a second and examine our hearts. What is true of you? What is the reality of your heart? Let me press in a little bit more bluntly. It is not what you say about yourself. It's not the religious label that you wear, whether that's Christian or even kind, wonderful, secular humanist. That doesn't matter. What is the state of your heart? What is your condition before God? Does your heart genuinely say to him, you are where I find my righteousness. You are my salvation. I'm not standing or leaning on myself. You truly are my prize and the one I'm living for. You're what I want more than anything else. Not that I'm perfect, not that everything's right in my life, but I have a goal and it's Jesus alone. You hear me? What is true of your heart? Again, it says, it's those who are victorious who will inherit all of this. That must come through faith in Jesus. That's the testimony of Scripture. So if this is who does inherit, receive, enter into this incredible blessing, who is not receiving this blessing? Again, we saw in Revelation 21, it made very clear through this list. It said liars, those who are cowardly, all these different attributes. And this list in Revelation is not meant to be exhaustive. You're not meant to check through and make sure you got none of these, okay, I'm good to go. Rather, it's meant to show that these are types, the lifestyles of those who are not walking in obedience with God, who are actively rejecting him as their delight, and they're seeking out other things revolving around themselves. So again, this is not meant to be exhaustive, but showing this is what a failure of repentance looks like. These things are going on. This is the fruit of not knowing God. And it says these people, hard to hear, it says they will be consigned to a second death, which is pictured as this fiery lake, this sulfur. 
Now again, I just want to recognize here that there are few beliefs that are more repugnant to our modern world than this idea of hell. As you're hearing this, it might be very challenging to you. This is very hard for many Christians to even consider. So like we, we believe in an everlasting loving God. How could he ever send people to this kind of place? I want to briefly wrestle with this and just give you three ideas that I think help us with this. I think there's more ideas that could be shared, but these three. Now, I want to clarify, too, I'm, I'm getting these from Tim Keller. Love Tim Keller, pastor in New York City who died this past year. He has an article called The Importance of Hell that I strongly encourage you to read on your own time. Very helpful article. That's where I'm drawing much of this material. I'm going to be quoting very heavily from Tim Keller in this next section because he puts it so well, and I hope it's clarifying to you. So first of all, he's sharing that we need to see that Jesus, more than anyone, Jesus, more than anyone, talks about this judgment of hell. Jesus uses this word called Gehenna, which is this very evocative image. It was a known trash heap dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where people would throw their trash. It's this kind of ever-burning trash dump. And if people didn't have a family to bury them, that's where they would throw these bodies also into Gehenna. So Jesus used this as an evocative image of this final judgment. For instance, hear this from Mark chapter 9, 47 through 48. It says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell or Gehenna, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, there's many other passages that we are comfortable meditating on and considering, but just think briefly with me. As a body would be thrown in Gehenna, a worm might consume them as they decompose, but eventually that worm would die as what it is feeding on is fully consumed. But Jesus is saying here in this judgment, the worm will not die because what they are living off of is never fully decomposed. The body they're feeding off of remains. Do you see the weight of this? Jesus is using a powerful image for us to be cautioned. Tim Keller says this. He says, If Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. I agree with him. We're saying God himself, who became incarnate and dwelt among us, felt it was very necessary to warn us more than anyone about this reality. We would do well to hear him and consider this. Rather than if it makes us uncomfortable in our modern world, that might not be enough to dismiss this idea. Secondly here, we should see that these images are actually more metaphors about what spiritual misery will be to be separated from God. So again, Tim Keller notes that Many, almost all commentators and theologians will draw out that these are not literal experiences of fire and darkness that are pictured, not a literal lake of fire. Even Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher back in the 1700s, would agree with this. He's showing actually these images are meant to be metaphors of what the spiritual misery is like in being separated from God. Now, this is not meant to downplay the warning of Jesus' words or to make us feel better. Actually, I think Tim Keller draws this out again well. He says that to say that Scripture, the scriptural image of hellfire, is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. I'm not trying to downplay this. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and darkness symbols for? 
They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to the isolation and the fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. I say this to help us because a lot of people dismiss this idea of hell because they've got cartoonish ideas in their minds, right? Like the devil with the pitchforks doing backstrokes in hell, right? They just kind of throw out ridiculous ideas and we then dismiss it. But I think Jesus is wanting us to reckon with the harsh reality that this will be the cost for people spiritually to no longer be connected with the one who is himself joy, to no longer be nourished by the one who is himself loved. What does that mean for no longer being next to the one you were made for, who's no longer sustaining you in that same way? The spiritual misery is something that we need to consider. Thirdly here, thirdly here, helps us to see that this is a real result. Hell is a result of our own choice. It's a consequence of our own decision. It's really meant here is often there's an idea that, oh, people just haven't quite been good enough and therefore God throws them into hell for eternity. Actually, it's more helpful for us to consider that even right now, people are actively rejecting God. And the same kind of hard-heartedness that exists in people now is what will ultimately continue to lead people to reject God. That even if they could be with God forever, they would not be able to enjoy him. Their heart does not yield. Again, it's just too helpful not to quote for you at length here, Tim Keller. I want this to be very clear to you. He says this, What is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, to go our own way, be our own, the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. You hear that? It's quoting another theologian, J.I. Packer. He writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. If the thing you most want is to worship God and the beauty of his holiness, then that is what you will get. If the thing you most want is to be your own master, then the holiness of God, see this, the holiness of God will become an agony. And the presence of God, a terror, you will flee forever. So even right now, you are actively choosing something. Right now, you are either pushing God away from you to make your own choices, to find delight in other things, and you are already currently reaping that fruit. You are probably already feeling spiritual desolation and loneliness in yourself already experiencing a darkness and a misery that is a foretaste of what hell will be. And if you are making Jesus your goal, you know what communion with him feels like. You have been in his presence. You are already having a foretaste of what the glory of eternity with him will be. You're already making him your prize, and you are already tasting what will be your forever inheritance. But we are choosing one or the other. That's what's so clear. You are either right now choosing to say, 
God, I will yield myself to you and worship you, in which case he will be your joy forevermore. Or you are actively choosing now to say, I will worship myself. I will live for me. I will live to satisfy me and my cravings. And you will not experience his joy forevermore. This is the hard testimony of scripture. So again, God is warning us that yes, many, many will experience him forever. Overwhelming, massive joy with him. And there will be many who are choosing their own life and choosing them, their own selves to worship will be handed what they've chosen. Let me hear one more quote for you. This is from C.S. Lewis. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever. Like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Hope this makes more sense to you. Again, this is not everything that could be said about this subject. I know this might still weigh very heavy on your hearts, but I hope this clarifies in some sense for you to think more deeply about what Scripture is saying. Before we wrap up here this morning, I want to look at one more question, though, about who. So we saw last week Dakota talking about the resurrection of the dead. Kind of draws out this question. If we are given new bodies, will we even be the same kind of people? Will we even recognize one another? If we're made new, who will we be? That's where it's really interesting to look at Jesus' resurrection. One of the most fascinating aspects of Jesus' resurrection is that when people who knew him very well saw him again, now resurrected, some of them did not immediately recognize him. This is really strange. For instance, Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, she goes to Jesus' tomb and she's grieving at his tomb. She realizes it's empty and she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize that it's him. She thinks it's a gardener and so she asks him if he's taken the body somewhere. Or again, later, there's two of Jesus' disciples that are walking along a road to a town called Emmaus. And as they walk along, it says, Jesus came up and began to walk with them. And even though they have a long conversation in the presence of Jesus, it says they were kept from recognizing him. Is this not incredibly odd? I mean, this is very important for us to consider. One, because if you are making up stories and you want to convince people that someone has been raised from the dead, you would never admit that some people who knew him well did not recognize him. If you're trying to create convincing stories, these are the exact kinds of details you would never put in. You wouldn't say that someone who knew Jesus for years did not recognize him. That's not convincing. It creates confusion. It makes it seem like maybe it's someone else. They've got a mistaken identity. So why in the world is this in Scripture? It seems to tell us this is being shared with us because this is what the eyewitness, eyewitnesses actually experienced. This is being shared, even though it might be a strange or embarrassing detail, because it's what actually happened. 
But why, why didn't they recognize Jesus right away, though? Again, this is helpful from Tim Keller. He draws out that if you've ever seen someone uh, that you grew up with in elementary school, maybe, and then 10, 15 years later, you see them again, you might have to do a double take, right? You ever been in that moment where you've not seen someone for a long time, and then you see them again, you recognize them, but maybe not right away. It, it takes you a moment because they're a different person. There's continuity, but discontinuity. They're the same but they're different. I've got some ridiculous images to share with you this morning. I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit today. Um, here's a baby photo of someone from a long time ago. This is this a cute little Zion. That's not him, actually. That's me as a baby just getting my first little baby teeth right at the bottom, right? Learning how to cheese. This is the same me. You might not recognize me, but I'm the same person this is now a couple years later now, but this is the same person that you're looking at, but it's different. Okay, I got one more for you. This is me in high school. I went on a trip. <laughs> Super long hair. I think I wanted to be Justin Bieber. I don't know. Had a good farmer's tan. I'm showing off there. This is, again, the same Caleb. Maybe more recognizable to you, but the same me. Again, it's been more years. This is the same body. The same person. There's continuity and discontinuity. It is the same, yet it's different. Does this make sense to you? In the same way with the resurrection, we will be given new bodies. And I believe similarly, you will see it's the same me, but I'm very different. It's the same body, but yet in the same way, it's not at all. We see this in Jesus' resurrection. He could suddenly appear different places. He could walk through walls. It's a very different body. But at the same time, he was eating food with his disciples. He could show them the scars in his hands. So it's the same body, but it's massively different. And this is our hope that we, yes, we will be the same people, but we won't quite be the same people. This is the hope that Philippians writes about in chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. This is the last verse for you. But our citizenship, where we really belong, it's heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So you too, if you are victorious, trusting in Jesus, you too, it says, by Jesus' incomparable power, you will have your lowly body transformed into a glorious body like his. Just feel the hope of this with me. This means that one day you will be with God in a body, seeing Jesus in his own glorious body. It won't just be a state, but you will see your king and your Lord. You will be in his physical presence, in awe at his greatness. You'll get to see God face to face. The other joy we should feel is that this also means you will see loved ones again. Now, many people in our culture push back against this as wishful thinking, but again, see, this is the rational outflow of the resurrection. It's the beautiful hope of the good news. Just because something is tremendously beautiful does not mean it's true. So if you have loved ones who are in Jesus, you have the hope that one day you again will see them face to face. And it will be the same them, but also different. 
You won't see them in the same kind of injury, wound, brokenness, or sorrow, but you will see them wholly restored in a glorious body full of joy and gladness before God. That is your real hope, what you are meant to consider because it's real and coming with our gracious King. I want to invite the band to come up now. We want to sing and praise God for this. But again, I hope you feel the joy here today of what is being brought to you in Jesus. Even if there's a heaviness of what this also means if we reject our King, He is offering you right now, not trying to hold you at arm's length, not trying to keep this just for some, but offering to you right now, will you find your joy in me? That he wants you to say, yes, I yield my entire self to you. So in that, would you pray with me as we sing here? Jesus, would you take this word, this incredible hope of what your resurrection means for us? It's not just some far-off event that happened a long time ago that doesn't give us present right now eagerness. But Jesus, would you take this word, this good news, and stir up life and hope in the people here? They would think about, what's that mean for me to stand before you and to see you in your glorious body, even as you, by your power, give me a new glorious body? Oh, Jesus, would you fill us with your joy? You fill us with your incomparable comfort, even for those who are grieving right now in this time of year, that this will not always be our world. Our grief will not always be with us wipe away every tear and we will be overcome before you. We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you when you all stand and worship.